This is Dustin, and you found the Kook Jester Show. Hello, and welcome to Kook Jester, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Catherine Bowers. She directs the Center for European Studies at the University of British Columbia. And let me tell you, she packed a ton of learning into our interview. We talk about her book, Writing Fear, Russian Realism and the Gothic, as well as why Russia was slow to develop a printing culture, what is meant by the Petersburg text, and the complex nature of many Russian writers. Uh, If you're anything like me, your reading list will expand considerably after listening to this. But don't worry, I have compiled and listed all of her recommendations in the show notes. I also want to personally thank Dr. Bowers for, first and foremost, being a teacher. I got caught up in the what of things, and she was ever so kind to refocus my energy and attention onto the why of things, as in why people do things. So, Katia, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing at Coop Jester, please subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform. And if you love this interview with Dr. Bowers, please share it with your friends and your family. So here is Dr. Catherine Bowers. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Good morning, Dr. Catherine Bowers. Welcome to the Coop Jester show. I am very happy that you are here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So you can call me Katya. That might be a little easier than my formal title. We touched on it briefly in the preamble there, but did you ever have that experience when you were in Mm -hmm. college or university where you did as much of the reading as you could, you followed the syllabus, but you still felt like you were about 25% of the way where you needed to be? Yeah, I think that happens to everyone. Okay, because I'm feeling that right now. No, I I think, (laughs) and actually the first Russian literature class I took, that was me. I was reading the text and I just couldn't get it. So it's, I think it's part of your kind of growing learning process, right? Yes, I'm in very unfamiliar and deep waters right now. And I'm looking for, you know, just the edge of the pool that is just out of reach. I, I'm finding it very amusing that you read my book and that's your response. <laughs> like, oh, dear. I did. So I did. Okay, where I'm at, I'm at the cha- I'm at chapter seven. So I'm about halfway through chapter seven. Okay, you read most of it. I read most of it. Listeners, there are nine chapters, so he's he's almost there. <laughs> I actually left you a review on Amazon for this. Ooh. And what I found most helpful about your book, I know that's a very, you know, you mm-hmm. wrote it for a specific audience, but I was looking at, you taught me how to pay attention because I've always struggled with comprehension and reading speed, but you pointed out little markers within text and not necessarily just Gothic elements, but how can I pay better attention as a reader? So to my mind, that earned five stars. And that is the Amazon review I gave you. That's nice. Sometimes (laughs) my students, um, your students write evaluations of you as an instructor when you're a university professor. And my students have several times written on my evaluations. She taught me how to read a novel. And I thought that's on the one hand, very weird, because it's not hard to read a novel. But then I get what they're saying. They didn't understand how to read like how to better understand the novel as they were reading it um and basically what i'm teaching them and apparently i've taught you through my book is the methodology of close reading right how to slow down your reading and look for those small details and then how to pull them out to make the bigger picture to make it make sense well that's the funny thing and then now i start seeing gothic elements in everything around me i'm like oh that was like one of my later questions i had for you but why did 
why does the gothic seem so enduring as part of you know just our day-to-day experience like it's everywhere like you see it it's like james bond there's like this shadowy bad guy who you never really get to know it's uh i mean i listen to a lot of heavy music and that's full of like devil imagery and black masses and and wizards and everything like that so why does it appeal to us so much it is everywhere well, the thing is, gothic. So, so gothic is created through this series of tropes, conventions that we recognize as being gothic. But the sensibilities that it taps into, these have been something that we've been fascinated by as human beings for thousands of years. And it's not just in the West, right? People have been fascinated by stories of murder and revenge for you know millennia. And what Gothic does is it gives you a framework for bringing these things into Western popular culture. So within Gothic studies, which is a, it's a discipline under literary studies, within Gothic studies, um, there are people who are working on Gothic in contexts where Gothic didn't really exist. So like, for example, Gothic indigenous writing, which on the one hand, yes, of course, within indigenous writing, there is there are these tropes, there are these kind of themes that come out. Um, they're not necessarily tied to the genesis of the Gothic genre from like 1763 and Horace Walpole and all of this, right? But they are tied to an experience of horror, of fear that we all experience as humans at some point, And they tap into that something that you can't quite describe. So it gives you a vocabulary or like a lexicon for thinking about or describing things that are not describable. Right. So can you give some examples of what would be a gothic convention? So one gothic convention is uh, like a haunted, this is like the classic gothic conventions. And when I say classic, I mean stemming from British literature, is the haunted monastery. It's tied to Catholicism and Britain at that time, Protestant. So Catholicism already kind of mysterious. And then you have, in addition to that, the haunting. So there's the idea of the ghosts from beyond that are coming and interacting in our world, which is not a normal thing. And then the interaction of those things together creates a sense of fear. And it's like it's a fear of the unknown. But it's also a fear that taps into these kind of like more primal fears that everyone has. Everyone has a fear of the unknown. And whether that fear manifests as a fear of like a ghost or whether it manifests as a fear of, I don't know what, I often get startled by like shadows at night on the wall that I think are like a bat. It's something that we can relate to. You talk about the migration of these elements Mm -hmm. from the West, so Western European into Russian writing. Why was it so popular Mm -hmm. in Russia or why was that a fertile place for these to take hold? So so we have to talk about the Russian book market to answer that question. Okay. This may be getting a little too into the weeds. But in 18th century Russia, there was strict control over printing. So in Western Europe, you have the evolution of the printing culture and of a publication culture. So you have, for example, in France, people are writing novels, they're getting published, there's a book market, so people are paying for novels. Writers are getting paid for the novels they're writing. In Russia, none of this existed. In Russia, you had printing presses that were tightly regulated by the autocratic czarist government. Um, They were largely used for bureaucratic or ecclesiastical purposes. So mostly for like government affairs or for church printing. Um, Most of the books that were printed were church books. And obviously, there's not a huge market for these things. Like you're not casually sitting down and like, reading these things as a great page turners. And towards the end of the century, the empress, Catherine the Great, 
loosened up the restrictions on printing presses. And this was part of an overall, I'm not going to say like loosening going on within government control at the time, because it wasn't that, but it made it possible for there to be, instead of zero private presses, a press could apply for a government permit and be able to print books, say. And so books began to come in, um, mostly foreign books, and Russian writers began to feel like they could write, basically. And what I mean by that is until the 18th century, there weren't like novels in Russia. This was a a fledgling market. Um, And so when literature began to be printed in Russian, this was something quite new. The Russian literary language um, had not yet been developed, um, by which I mean that there wasn't a, a language that was recognizably used for literature. So like in French, for example, you might have the language elements that are specifically used for like metaphor. That didn't really translate in Russian at the time. And so you end up with writers who are very eager to write in imitation of the things that they're reading from French, from English, from German. And one of these was Nikolai Karamzin. Um, Nikolai Karamzin wrote a series of short stories in the 1790s. He had just been on a trip to, I forget where he went exactly, France, England, Switzerland for sure. But he'd just been on this this trip. It's documented in letters of a Russian traveler, which he wrote when he came back. And the other thing that he came back to do was he wanted to kind of experiment with different genres. So he wrote a series of stories. Um, some of them are sentimental, most famously a story called Poor Lisa, Biedna Lisa. Um, but he also wrote a story called Astra Bornholm, the island of Bornholm or Bornholm Island, which is one of the first or the first Russian Gothic work. And he's just kind of experimenting with genre, like trying to transpose these these tropes from Western literature into Russian literature. But after this, many writers began experimenting much more with genre. Is it right to call the group of writers that came after realists or they started using these conventions to actually start talking about so the less literary? Okay, cool. No. Okay. Literary production goes through different trends where a lot of writers will be writing unique examples of similarly themed, similarly, I guess, like the philosophy behind the literature or the ideas behind the literature is the same. So um, first in the 18th century, there's classicism, there's, as I said, sentimentalism, gothic, these are like subgenres, And these are also pre-genres of a larger thing called romanticism. And realism developed as a reaction action to romanticism. So romanticism is a genre, you know, you think of like Byron, he's a great romantic with a capital R writer. And um, romanticism in the Russian context, like the great romantic writers are like Lermontov, Pushkin. Romanticism is all about the individual. So the individual hero, the individual struggling against the world, whereas realism is more about a collective. So it's, it's more about kind of the individual within a collective experience. And whereas romanticism is about these kind of like over the top feelings, realism is more about the everyday. So more about recognizing your feelings within an everyday context. What, that's what it allowed. I mean, on the back half of your book allows it to talk about the political experience, the experience women had in Russian society, government, and those elements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're still talking about these things in romanticism, mind you, but it looks very different. Okay, the romantic is more, it's more lofty. It's, is it talking about similar landscapes, but it's reading them differently? Is that an accurate way to put it? No, not exactly. So in the romantic, within romanticism, they're talking about 
because it's all about feelings and emotion, a lot of the landscapes are exaggerated or exotic, right? So like a classic example is A Hero of Our Time, uh, which it's a novel by Mikhail Lermontov. It was written in 1841, or in 1840, rather. And this is a novel about a character, Pichorin, who is trying to kind of like strive and figure out where he should be. But the novel is written from the perspective of multiple characters who interact with Pichorin, plus characters trying to figure out what's going on in Pichorin's diary. So you, you get kind of glimpses of it. But the whole thing is set not in kind of an everyday context, but in the Caucasus. So Pichorin is traveling in the Caucasus. Um, which is at the time in the Russian Empire, this was a, I'm using heavy air quotes here, exotic setting. And we can talk about Russian colonialism <laughs> later in this, but it, it's a romantic text that romanticizes colonial conquest, um, but romanticizes it through the the hero's like struggles with um, these kind of like larger existential questions. And then what is the Peterburg text? Why was that so important? So St. Petersburg was the imperial capital of the Russian Empire. Um, it was founded in 1703 by Peter the Great. It's kind of an unusual city because basically Peter the Great got into a war with the Swedes and he conquered the land that Petersburg was on, which was swampland. There were uh, indigenous peoples living on the land at the time, um, but not very many because it was very swampy. And so Peter the Great conquered it and he decided that he wanted to build a classical European city on this land, which was admittedly not a great idea because, as I mentioned, swampy. Um, it's very far north, so it gets really cold. But in the summer, there are tons of mosquitoes. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of illness. It periodically floods. As I mentioned, swampy, so the ground is not real stable for like the building of it. But Peter the Great, as the emperor, was able to, what's the word I'm looking for, mobilize hundreds of thousands of encerfed workers to basically labor on this project. Many of them died over the course of building it. Um, and he brought in all these architects and he created, yeah, what is called the Venice of the North, right? It's a, it's a city that's very beautiful, but it has this dark history. And the Petersburg text, um, starting from a poem by Alexander Pushkin called The Bronze Horseman, which is a romantic poem. Um, the Petersburg text is a text that engages with this kind of narrative of on the one hand, empire and empire building, but on the other hand, this darker side of that experience. So, so both kind of sides of that um, autocracy and the individual. And certainly within the, the Russian empire, and this being the capital of it, it was a bureaucratic capital. So you had a lot of like little clerks that were like one cog in the system. And a lot of the Petersburg writers were very interested in the experience of like the individual clerk going through this experience. So the Petersburg text developed and there are a lot of tropes related to it, but it's a, I'm going to use an academic word now. <laughs> Sorry for the jargon. I like academic words. All right. It's a palimpsestic. <laughs> you just had an expression on your face like, oh dear. I did. I was like, I'll have to figure out how to use that one in conversation. Okay. Explain palimpsestic. So a palimpsest is a text that builds on itself. So it might have, it has like multiple layers that build. And the, the Petersburg text concept is palimpsestic in that each Petersburg text becomes a part of the evolving overall Petersburg text, if that makes sense. So, so like 
Pushkin writes The Bronze Horseman, and then Gogol writes Nevsky Prospekt, and Gogol's Nevsky Prospekt is referring to The Bronze Horseman. But then maybe Gogol writes something else. Maybe Gogol writes um, The Overcoat, and that refers to both Gogol's earlier works and The Bronze Horseman, right? So, so right. each writer okay. is like very hyper-consciously aware of the tradition that he's writing in, of the past of these thing of things. And then um, the result is a rich body of text that, that I teach in a class called the Petersburg text, but also that, uh, <laughs> that build on each other in interesting ways to um, comment on empire, to comment on autocracy, to comment on the individual in the city and in the system. You also noted that Gothic style was first embraced by female writers. Why did this happen? Um, in part because it enabled them to write about or to articulate things that it was not, I'm heavy air quotes here, proper to articulate at the time. So it's not, it's not surprising at all that Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a major early feminist thinker, was writing Gothic fiction because Gothic fiction enables her to explore the danger of being a woman in the world, basically, and to write about this in ways that it's okay for other women to read. So one of the, one of the kind of early Gothic female gothic, which is like a subgenre of gothic, um, one of the early female gothic um, questions is if you're a sheltered young lady and you've always been, you know, educated at home, you're surrounded by people who support you and you get thrust out into the world with no knowledge of the world, horrible things can happen to you. And what does that look like? And whether that looks like you get kidnapped by bandits or whether that looks like nefarious things happen to you because of like things that your guardian is doing, it's... Mary Wollstonecraft and other writers at the time believed that that was a conversation that it was important to have. Just kind of the the sheltered woman who was not able to fend for herself needed to be educated, right, for her own protection. Because you talk about the intellectual landscapes or our emotional landscapes through the Gothic as well. So it's almost like I'm smiling on the outside, but crying on the inside. Not exactly. Not exactly. Some Gothic heroines do a lot of crying on the outside too. Like... I mean, okay. I don't know. It's not about kind of the facade that you that you put up. It's about the feelings that you're feeling. And those feelings may, might match to your outside demeanor or they might not. Uh, and then I was also noticing uh, how men or how the male writers took the Gothic conventions and adopted it in a different way. I did read mm -hmm. the, uh, I believe it's Turgenev's letter to or critique on, is it Evgenia Tur? Yeah, Turgenev's letter to Evgenia Tur. And on one hand, I thought it was quite complimentary. Like he was saying, she can write in a way that I cannot and she can access certain things and it just flows through her. But then there was also that slight at the end where being like, you're writing too much or you're just saying too much and there's a whole lot of unnecessary stuff. So when a female writer published something at the time, was this a typical response that she would get? So the reason that I put that letter in is not because, so it is complimentary, but it's also very condescending. And that condescension, that hierarchization in which women's literature is considered to be in second place to men's literature because women's literature is too subjective. Where and These are Turgenev's words, right? He says that men are more objective. That hierarchizes and puts value on these things in a way that I think does a disservice to women's literature. And honestly, Yevgeny Tour was pretty angry at this review and she thought it did a disservice to it too. Yeah. Fair enough. And that, that hierarchization in which men's writing is placed higher than women's writing was typical. 
because women were considered to be too emotional um, or women's writing was considered to be too emotional. But you need emotion in writing. I mean, yeah. Otherwise, writing is super boring. All right. As long as we agree on that, we need emotion in writing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there was one question which came up right away for me, like when I was just Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about that and um, why gothic imagery took hold in such a time of technological advancement. Like there was railroads, there was, you know, Mm -hmm. they were building everything out of iron and they were exploring new things. But it makes sense now because I probably may be able to answer my own question, but not articulate it Mm -hmm. in a very good way. But that all that was scary for people and they didn't know what was coming next or what the result was going to be. And then there was also seems to be that awareness that all this new technology and advancement was Mm -hmm. empty at the end. It didn't really... It didn't really connect us to our experience or it didn't really connect us to our landscape or our community, but we still needed those things that tied us towards what we didn't mm-hmm. understand. Yeah, I, I think definitely. Um, the, so the Gothic novel that springs to mind related to this is Dracula. So Dracula is published in the late 1890s. And this is a novel in which there are obviously vampires and there's Dracula, you know, and he's going around like, Um, sucking people's blood and being a vampire and then there are the people who are going up against Dracula and they are armed with the latest technology right they're making like voice recordings of their notes they're using this this very advanced technology for the time to combat this and it is not really that helpful like at the end of the day you don't kill a vampire with technology right that kind of fear that there are things that are greater than all of this technology and that that technology is empty at the end of the day. That I think is is definitely present at the time. Now that came out in the 1890s. So after all of this period, um, but the, the late 19th century, so from 18, say the beginning of the Crimean War in Russia. So that's 1850s, like early 1850s until the end of the century. And honestly, until the revolution is a time of immense upheaval. So not just technological change, not just industrialization, although this is all going on, but also um, immense social change because you have these uh, wide ranging reforms that are put into place after Alexander II comes ascend to the the Tsardom. And these reforms include things like an entire overhaul of the judicial system, an overhaul of the educational system, the liberation of the serfs, um, which had wide ranging consequences for all levels of society, some positive, um, and for the upper classes, just a lot of change that they were not really equipped to think through. Because this happened very rapidly, like within the space of five years, all of these things happened. And then the rest of the the century is kind of like ripple effects of these things and people dealing with them, which I, I think that, that that time of upheaval where things are changing very quickly and you have these new technologies developing, it's, it's a very fertile time for <laughs> Gothic to take hold. But I see Gothic everywhere, like since I started doing this research project. So I'm a bit biased. Because I know you talked about the Russian library and you were in libraries all over the world. Did you have a favorite one? Um, the library that I like working in the best is actually the British Library. I don't know. I just find it a very soothing place to work. It's It's got a good vibe to it. I also spent a lot of time, before I came to UBC, I was a postdoc at the University of Cambridge. And so I spent a lot of time at the Cambridge University Library. It's kind of like a happy place. But I, I like... Yeah, working in libraries all over the world, I've worked in a lot of libraries. And those ones, I think, are just very, they're very familiar. And they have a lot of the books I need. But yeah, favorite libraries. You speak Russian as well, right? Yes. 
did you grow up speaking Russian or was that something no. that you learned? No, I enrolled in Russian 101 my first semester of university. And that was the beginning of my career as a Russianist. In terms of learning, is it a relatively easy language to pick up? So I, I spoke German as a child. And so I came into Russian already knowing German. And Russian is also a case-based language, like Latin or like Greek. Um, and so with German, which also has cases, like I understood the logic of the language when I first started learning it. But th that being said, like that's not, the cases are just one part of learning Russian. So I, I had a pretty good handle on that. Um, the verbal system uh, in Russian is challenging. I, I found that to be quite challenging, especially the verbs of motion, which <laughs> I'm still challenged by. I've been doing this for a long time and I always need to practice more. But I would say that Russian is a language that requires a lot of practice, like conversational practice. When I was learning it, I had a lot of trouble between getting the, like I understood the grammar, but I wasn't able to speak with the grammar. And I had to go to, a, I went to a program um, where I was forced to speak all the time in Russian. And that was really helpful because it helped my brain get the grammar translated into the speech that I needed to communicate, right? It was an immersion program. So you sign a pledge saying that you only speak Russian for like two months and then you go and you do and when I first got there, my Russian sucked. And when I left, my Russian sucked, but it sucked less. Like I was able to <laughs> at least articulate myself. And I, I did that in my the summer between my second and third years of university. But by the time I got to grad school, my, my Russian was okay. I have a professional working competency in Russian now. It took a while to get better. I just love how you articulated that. It's like it sucked and then it sucked less. And I think that is so much about life and learning. It's just, you know, make it suck a little less. Yeah. But I, I mean, also the thing with Russian is that no matter how long you study Russian, you always come across things that, and I mean, I'm sure this is true of every single language, um, but you always come across things where you're like, wow, I didn't know that. I've been reading Russian texts for 20 years and I had no idea. And so you're always kind of learning new things. And I think as a non-native speaker of a language, I feel like I'm constantly in a state of learning. So like when you go and speak to a native Russian speaker who grew up there, because sometimes when you go traveling and you try mm -hmm. your best to speak in the language that is of the culture, it's not always very well received. Like what is the reception when you, especially mm -hmm. when you were younger and just learning it? When I was first learning it, people would just switch to English. They'd be like, oh, you've learned some Russian. That's nice. Let's talk English. But... As I got better, my Russian got to be better than their English. So then, I, I mean, I have an accent, obviously, when I speak Russian. Like, I, I speak Russian with, I don't know, it's kind of a neutral accent, I've been told. I don't know for sure what, what it sounds like. But it's not it's not a heavy accent. And that's helpful for, for understanding. But people are always very aware that I am not a native speaker. And as soon as people are aware that you're not a native speaker, I feel like this kind of like barrier goes up. There's some apprehension that they might have to explain something to you more. And I had an experience where I got stuck in the Moscow airport in Domodedovo, and I was like in this underground space. And th there were some airport officials there who were trying to figure out what had happened to my luggage. It was like three in the morning. Um, and they did not have a lot of patience for my Russian. Like they would ask me a question. I would answer the question. And then they would be like, do you not understand the question? I'd be like, no, I just answered the question. And they'd say, well, what's the answer? And I'd repeat exactly what I'd said. And they'd be like, oh, well, why didn't you say so? And I feel like it was just, they were tired. They're used to dealing with people who don't have any clue what they're talking about. Sometimes that happens. For the most part, it's okay. 
And then going from the other way, how does the works that are written in Russian to begin with, and then they're translated into other languages, which ones do they go the other way well with? So the question of translation is a fraught question, I find, because what seems like a good translation to me might not seem like a good translation to you. Um, And I find that people often are interested in two different sides of translation. One, how close is it to the original? And two, how readable is it? So what I tell my students who are in my classes is I'm recommending this translation because I find it very readable. But if you find that the text is not reading well for you, go to the library, look at the first chapter of five or six different translations and see which one reads best to you. And that's your translation. Like the most important thing for me is readability, especially if the the person is not that close to the language. With that being said, there's a very prolific team of translators who have translated a lot of Russian literature that are published very widely. And people who know Russian, like Russian speakers, love their translations because they're very close to the original. But I find that my students who don't know Russian struggle with their translations because they are not super readable. contentious words, but that, that's my general thought about it. And that being said, like one of the novels I teach is called Eugene and Yegin. And this is a novel in verse by the poet Pushkin. And it is a very funny novel. It's funny. Um, but if you get a bad translation of it, it's not funny. And that's how you know you have a bad translation. It, it should be funny, right? But humor doesn't always translate. And if your translation is really clunky or kind of archaic, the, the humor goes, especially when the humor is related to wordplay. Okay, right, right. I know we talked about this a little bit because you had not issue with some of my questions, but there was some corrections about my impressions about them. So I haven't read, I I fully admit, I did read Notes from Underground before we chatted. I wish I had have read that after I read your book because I feel it would have added some. It's still a very good book. Um, And I've read a few short stories and there's been some modern fantasy works. So the initial impression that I have when I'm thinking about taking on a Russian author is that I I have a feeling that it's going to be incredibly hard work and I'm not going to feel good at the end of it. And it feels like a daunting task just because of the heaviness of it or the subject matter. But I'm realizing just in our conversation, that impression isn't necessarily correct. Yes. So Russian literature does have a reputation for being like these heavy, gloomy, enormous novels that talk about the meaning of life. And sometimes they do that, right? But I think the thing to remember is that these are books, just like other books. Like, yes, there are great novels that talk philosophically about the meaning of life amongst them. But I think when you, when you go into reading a novel and you think like, okay, I'm going to take on the novel, like you're already setting yourself up to be daunted by it. Just like open the book and read the first page. But um, it could be because of the subject matter too. Like I was, I think I'm halfway through uh, the Gulag Archipelago. Okay. I mean, that's, that's not a happy book. No, no. But there's always this, even um, The Master and Margarita, I quite like by... Uh, Bugalkov is Bugalkov. Mm-hmm. and and that's funny like there's funny elements but there's still that undertone of where just like life is not good well I mean the master and margarita is written in Stalinist Moscow yes. right so yes yes again that in Stalinist Moscow and no life is not good people are actively disappearing from the streets and being sent into labor camps or being imprisoned or shot right so so no 
life is not good. Um, but there, there is that humor to it. And there is that sense of, I think, hope about it. Um, and that, that sense of hope, I think, runs present through most Russian literature. The, the only work I can think of that's just like completely hopeless, although very funny, um, is called uh, The Family Golovlyov. And The Family Golovlyov is a novel about, it's a satirical novel. It's about a family and just horrible things happen to them. And at the end, well, it doesn't end well. Let's say that. There, there is no hope. Um, and that is, uh, that is, I think, the only Russian novel I can think of that is without hope. No, thank you for clarifying. No, no And <laughs> I don't know if I'm necessarily alone in having that perception, but where, if to your mind, where would someone start if they want to dip a toe into Russian literature, but they've been a little bit hesitant to do so? It depends what they're interested in. Probably ones you've heard of, you know, Crime and Punishment. It's a page turner. It's a page turner if you get the right translation, I should say. If it's not a page turner for you, check other translations. And um, I really love teaching Eugene and Yegin because it's delightful. So Eugene and Yegin, highly recommended. It's not very long. It's very funny. It's very good. Um, it's written in verse. So make sure you get a verse translation. You don't want to get controversial and like recommend translations. But I can tell you that the ones that I recommend to my students and they're I should say they're allowed to choose whatever translations they want we go through a process where we read Eugene Yegin has been translated a lot because it's like a like a classic right um it's by Pushkin who is widely considered to be Russia's greatest writer and so it's it has a lot of translations and so we we do a thing in my class where we, we read 40 different translations from the 19th century to today of the first two stanzas of the novel so that students can understand like the pitfalls of translation and how to how to assess translations. Um, but the the translation that I recommend them to read if they want to take my recommendation is the translation I like. So it's completely subjective. Is um, the Charles Phelan translation? And if you Google it, you can also find a delightful audiobook version with uh, Stephen Fry reading the Charles Phelan translation, which is pretty delightful. Because you mentioned you didn't want to appear controversial, so why is it? controversial to recommend a particular translation? So in <laughs> in my field, people fight about which translation is the best translation. I'm not convinced there is a best translation. I think it's like very subjective. It's an individual thing. And so I always feel kind of like weird recommending translations for people. And I always make sure that I say like, I recommend this translation because this is how I feel about it, as opposed to I recommend this translation because it's the best. Okay, so it's like the it's just translating the who is the greatest quarterback of all time conversation into literary yeah. realms. Okay. Yeah, we have our niche fights. Like <laughs> <laughs> As well, because you are a professor and you do teach and you assign papers and research to those classes. I do have a question about the boundary of what the author intends and then what the reader interprets. Like, where is it too far? And at what point is it just too much? Are we pulling too much from what we're reading? So what I try to teach my students is how to support an argument. And so they are graded not on their interpretation, right? They're graded on how well they can support their interpretation. So the first thing is we don't know what Dostoevsky meant when he wrote this stuff. And it's not like Dostoevsky, in some cases he did, but for the most part, he didn't sit down and write out, you know, in the Brothers Karamazov, I wrote this and I meant that by it. Like, no one's writing this. And so 
all we have in a course of literary analysis is our own interpretations. And what I'm trying to teach my students is how to do interpretation that is based on the evidence of the text. All we have is interpretation, our own interpretation. But there's a difference between interpretation where like you're reading a poem and you're like, well, the author mentions flies and flies are related to fly paper and fly paper is sticky. And this is about the stickiness of life. Like that's not good interpretation. But if you say something like, okay, in stanza one, the author compares this and this. And then in stanza three, the author brings in this other theme and it rhymes with the word in the first stanza so we can relate those two things together. And then later on in the poem, this theme is brought up again in this other way. And so we can interpret that the author means this based on X, Y, and Z, right? That's a better interpretation because it's based on the evidence that we have, which we get from close reading of the literary text. A lot of literary analysis is interpretation, but there is definitely a difference between good interpretation, evidence-based interpretation, and bad interpretation. And I was wondering, just in your classes, because we, you know, the the crisis in the Ukraine is front and center. Was there a noticeable difference of the students' impressions or feelings before and after that happened? So I was teaching last semester when Russia invaded Ukraine, and I have a mix of students in my classes. Um, so I have some Russian students in my classes, some Ukrainian students in my classes. I have some students who are learning Russian studies or learning Eastern European studies. Um, and so I have a variety of students in my class who have different connections to Ukraine. Um, and some of those are intellectual, some of them are familial. So the first thing is I was teaching my Dostoevsky class. Um, Dostoevsky is notoriously nationalistic. Um, he has like one of the things that I make sure to do in my Dostoevsky class is we, we teach Dostoevsky's war writing. Dostoevsky wrote all these novels about universal brotherhood, but he also was a journalist. He wrote a mono journal, uh, which is basically issues come out and all of it is Dostoevsky writing articles about things. And so he, for years, he commented on, you know, what was happening in the courts. He commented on different political things that were happening, different ecclesiastical things that were happening different crimes that were happening. And he commented a lot about uh, Russia's engagement in conflict. Um, so when the Russo-Turkish War broke out in 1876, 1877, I'm not sure on my dates, um, Dostoevsky commented quite a lot about this. And Dostoevsky's position was, yes, we should absolutely go to war. Yes, we should kill as many Turks as we want. And yes, it's important to defend ourselves because, and he, he says quite a lot of things about how Europe is positioned against Russia, basically, which doesn't seem that relevant to the Russo-Turkish War, but Dostoevsky was making those connections. And what's really striking about his war writing is that it could have been written like in February. Like a, a lot of the stuff that he's ranting about, it feels very contemporary, particularly to the, the moment of the Russian invasion. And so in my class, uh, we talked about it, you know, um, and I made sure to point out that like this is a, a space where we accept um, students' viewpoints and we support us and we, we come in with an open mind and this is a difficult thing we're going to talk about, but we're going to talk about it. And and I, I should say, like, I plan this class, like I teach this class every time I teach the Dostoevsky class. It's important to have that part of Dostoevsky there because you can't fully understand what Dostoevsky is doing unless you understand this part of Dostoevsky, like the not the not <laughs> affirmational side. 
it was a hard conversation this year, but it was productive and I'm, I'm glad that we did it. But I mean, I started teaching in this job in 2015. And so I came in a year after the Maidan happened in Ukraine. And so I've always been pretty cognizant of the fact that, you know, you need to teach Russian literature from the perspective, like it's important to contextualize that Russia is a colonial empire, that there are different colonial subjects within that empire, that Russian culture is hierarchized in the 19th century too. In the Soviet Union, Russian culture was kind of like raised up above other cultures of republics within the Soviet Union. And it's it's important to have that piece of context and that, that understanding. And, you know, I try as best I can to convey that through my classes. Could I ask you about the thought about sanctioning or canceling Russian literature as a result of the sanctions? And whether, is that a good idea or not? So I understand where this is coming from. This new idea of canceling Russian culture is coming from. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that productive. Um, I think that Russian culture, because Russia has been a major imperial power for so long, and because its culture has been hierarchized as I mentioned, above other cultures within, for example, the Soviet Union or within the Russian Empire, or even within Russia today. Russia is a vast, multicultural, multi-ethnic country. And a lot of the literature that comes out of it, at least in translation, is very focused on European Russia, right? And not, not so focused on the other parts of Russia. Um, and I can see how on the one hand, we should absolutely be uplifting Ukrainian culture at this moment because Ukrainian culture is under attack. But one of the things that Russia is doing within Ukraine is going after cultural monuments. They are trying to um, destroy Ukrainian history textbooks. There's a lot of this kind of literal war on culture happening in Ukraine right now. And so Ukrainian culture absolutely should be right now preserved, protected, and uplifted, amplified, right? And I, I do believe very, very strongly in that, but I don't think that canceling Russian culture altogether is the way to go. I do think that Russian culture has for a long time had a, a place where it is privileged, and I'm not sure that that is necessarily justified over privileging other cultures, just as I don't necessarily think that like the privileging of, for example, British literature over other literatures. I, I don't think any literature should be privileged over others. It's literature. It's all from a certain cultural standpoint. But I do think that we can learn from Russian culture and learn a lot about what is the attitudes that have led to the invasion of Ukraine. It just seems to me like if you, if you want to have some some level of understanding, you need to have that cultural component. No, no, thank you for tackling a, a, a difficult one. I've had minimal experience with, as I told you about, like with this body of literature and historical experience, but a lot of the authors that I'm, they're writing within mm -hmm. oppressive systems and they're trying to figure out their way through it themselves and their writing isn't necessarily a thing of or their allegiance yeah. to what is in power or the system that's in power is one of powerlessness or lack of choice rather than an ability to effectively make change within their world. Yeah, to some extent. Although I should also say that some Russian writers like Dostoevsky, like Pushkin, like Solzhenitsyn to some degree, do believe very fervently in the, the kind of national idea of Russia, 
So it does get complicated. Like there's the political system and then there's the idea of Russia that that is ideological. And that those those two things, sometimes they go hand in hand and sometimes they're not really compatible. Like Solzhenitsyn is very against the Gulag, right? He's very against the, the Soviet Union, but he is very for a national Russia. I mean, every person is complex, right? It gets tricky. So like Dostoevsky, for example, is all for individual freedom, but Dostoevsky is also all for czarist autocracy. And those two things, like, are they compatible? Not really, but Dostoevsky is complex. Just like I mentioned, you know, Dostoevsky, he has beautiful ideas about universal brotherhood, but he also has very clearly delineated ideas about who should be in that brotherhood. Universal is not universal, right? So it's it's complicated. But I would say, like, if you want to understand what's happening in Ukraine right now, the people to read are Ukrainian writers. Um, I really recommend reading Andrei Korkov. I really recommend reading uh, Sergei Jadan. Uh, they have had books recently translated that are about they're in reaction to the previous eight years of war in eastern Ukraine and the seizure of Crimea, um, but they speak very eloquently to what's happening currently to Ukrainian culture and to Ukraine. So is there two, is there a book by each that you recommend, like a specific title? Let me pause for a second and just find that. I, I wrote a thing that has the exact titles of the books I would recommend, and I want to make sure I get them exact, which is why I'm going through this process of trying to find exactly what they are, because I'm afraid I'm going to misspeak. Well, searching for your book okay. actually expanded my reading list. And so I also bought Sasha Sokolov. Oh, what'd you get? This one. In the House of the Hanged. Oh, yeah. They're good? Yes. Sasha Sokolov is really good. He's a little different from Solzhenitsyn or Bulgakov, but I mean, like, every Russian writer is different. Between Dog and Wolf is also good. The other one I would recommend is A School for Fools. The list keeps growing. Of course. Always <laughs> learning. So what do we got? So the, the two books by Ukrainian authors that I would recommend, honestly, I would recommend reading a lot of Ukrainian literature. It is wonderful. But uh, the two I would recommend to start with are Serhii Zhadan's The Orphanage, uh, which was recently translated, and Andrei Korkov's Grey Bees, which was, again, recently translated. These were published 2017 and 2018. Translations have come out of them in the last couple of years. The translations are good, um, and they are specifically about the war in eastern Ukraine. And there's a lot of other Ukrainian writers that I could recommend. I'm always always keen to recommend a woman writer. So I recommend Oksana Zabushka, who's writing really beautiful contemporary Ukrainian literature. She's also been translated. Which one would you go with? So the, the one I would recommend is The Museum of Abandoned Secrets. It was published before the Maidan in 2014. So it talks about Ukrainian culture, but not in the context of... Um, Russian aggression. It's very interesting. It has to do with memory and histories and personal histories. It's really good. As I said, you're adding to my ever accumulating pile of must read books. So thank you. Uh, do you have time for a couple of fun ones to end off with? Yeah, ask me the fun ones. <laughs> uh, as a shaper of young minds. So usually I get... That's a weird way to put it, but sure. I'll, I'll take it. Yes, yes, yes. And I know you are, you are very passionate about what you do, but we're coming into the fall semester and you're going to have a fresh group of students in various classes. And I don't know what your schedule is like this fall, but... Um, I'm on sabbatical this fall, so... Are you? Oh, okay. So we could just scrap this question. 
<laughs> if it was the fall of 2023. So had you been teaching this fall, what do you say to get your students looking beyond the grade or looking beyond the course credits? Like you just get them excited mm -hmm. about this journey. Do you tend to open with anything or do you just cut right into the material? I just go into the material. I find that students take my classes for a variety of reasons. Some of them are there for the grade. Some of them are there for the grade and because they love the literature. Some of them are there because they're curious and the, the material speaks for itself, right? I mean, at, at the point when you're talking about the literature, like the, the grades seem almost superfluous to me. You do have to assign them. <laughs> like UBC does require that the students get a grade. And I try to make the, the grading process for my students not arduous. So um, I make sure that what they're doing in the class is tied to what we're doing in the class. If they're doing some kind of analysis, we have discussed how to do that analysis and they see the value of doing that analysis. And I find that uh, give them grades for things they do in the class. So they get like a participation grade and there's different ways they can do that. And participation doesn't, they're, they're not graded on like the quality of participation. The one requirement is that I have to be able to tell that they've read the book. It's kind of like a, yes, you've done the reading kind of grade or no, you haven't. And I mean, I'm always kind of changing up what I do in my classes. And I've started doing creative projects more and more. So for example, I teach a Soviet sci-fi class. Oh, that's and cool. And my Soviet <laughs> It is pretty cool. Um, one of the things my students do in the class is they have to write a utopia. And so they're they're using the, the different ideas from the reading that we've done to create a utopia. It's usually harder than they think. They have to have certain, like, certain parts of the society that they have to describe, and they have to describe them in ways that it seems plausibly functional, right? And then in another class, students exchange their utopias and have to create a dystopia out of another student's utopia by undermining the political institutions in the utopia. And it's a very eye-opening exercise, but it's like, it's, it's kind of fun too. Like it's creative, but it's also analytical. So we do a lot of things kind of like this. It's fun. I have another one. We read a story about a mad scientist who has uh, figured out a way to keep heads alive in jars. If you want to read this stuff, by the way, it is translated. So this is Professor Dowell's Head by Alexander Belyaev, who also who also wrote Amphibian Man, which is an amazing movie, by the way. Amphibian Man is the story between a genetically modified fish person and the girl he loves, and they're separated. They're singing. I don't know. It's good times. But um, Professor Dowell's head is, is about these severed heads in jars. And they do, a, my students do like a role play where they, they get a scenario that towards the end, the climax of the story where there's like the scientist who wants to exploit the head in the jar. And there's Professor Dowell who's just a head in the jar. And then there's his assistant who just wants to take care of Professor Dowell. And they have to role play the different roles and work out a scenario between them where, where everyone kind of gets what they want, but using ethics. And it's kind of, it's fun to play these kind of things, but then they, they write it up and they do, I mean, it's literary analysis, right? They're doing characterization and they're, they're thinking through what the text is telling you. You can't do things that the character wouldn't do in the text, but you have to have such a good understanding of what the character is to be able to role play the character. So these are some of the things that we do in my classes. Professor Dowell's head. Just judging on that answer, I, I'm looking at time. I wasn't going to ask this, but I feel I have to. And I feel you would probably give a good answer to this. But to your mind, what is a kook? 
So, so when I first got your email about appearing on this podcast, the first association I had with Kook Jester was, do you remember that it's like a finance company from a while ago that went out of business called The Motley Fool? Oh, yeah. 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 It reminded me of that. And I, I realized that it's kind of like a, a literal, it's almost like a, a one-to-one like Kook Jester, Motley Fool. Um, but a Kook, is, it just seems kind of like something that's out there to me, like something's kooky. Which is not bad. Like, kookiness is great. I like that that was your first association. You do a lot of writing. So do you have some go-to music that gets you in the writing mood? Uh, so I I listen to often the same track on repeat over and over again. And it'll be something that there are a couple of them. And it depends what, what kind of writing I'm doing. But it's all classical or like soundtrack. So my favorite soundtrack is to the the 2004 BBC miniseries adaptation of Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South. Again, kind of niche, kind of niche. It's fantastic. The miniseries is fantastic if you want to watch, you know, romance plus industrialization. The reason I partially laughed was the, um, it wasn't so much the title, but it was just how the title kept going. And my daughter is really into the high school musical right now. So it's high school musical, the musical, the series. And so every time she tells me about this, I get, what are you watching? High School, the musical, the musical, the series. I'm like, I'm good with High School Musical, but. <laughs> You'd think they would get an acronym. High School Musical, the musical, the series. Although I guess the, the acronym would also be kind of unwieldy. Yeah, that's a lot of letters. H-M-T-M-T-S. H-M-T-M-T-S. I think that could work. So uh, we pressed stop and then we pressed re-record because Katia mentioned that I have not asked her how she got into this and was afraid that there was no context for our discussion. And also because I understood that was what your podcast was about, right? <laughs> well, I was hoping just through our discussions that that would inspire people, but you are correct. So I was negligent. I got so involved in what I wanted to get out of this that I... <laughs> But Katia, I would like to know what prompted an interest in Russia, in Russian studies, in Eastern European studies, like what kicked it all off? So I mentioned that I spoke German when I went to university, I think. Yes. Yes, you did. Right. The reason I spoke German is because I grew up in Germany. I'm American, but my parents were working in Germany, specifically in West Germany. So my father's job was in the military. Um, I grew up very cognizant of like the Iron Curtain and with very little knowledge of what was on the other side of it. We lived close to the border with the East in Europe at the time, and I was always really interested in that. And then when I went to my family moved to the U.S. when I was 12, and I didn't learn a lot about kind of Eastern Europe, the Iron Curtain, any of that in high school, at least in the high school that I went to. And so when I went to university, I was really interested to learn more about that. I took a Russian history class and I took Eastern European literature and I ended up taking Russian because I'd already fulfilled my language requirement and I thought, you know, I'd be interested to take a new language um, and I was curious and I just kind of kept doing it. Like the more I took, the more I was interested. And eventually I changed my major from <laughs> from what it originally was, um, computer science, to Russian, which, yeah, it was a, it was a change, but uh, I'm glad I did. And then I just kept being interested in what I was doing. So I kept going and I did a master's degree and then I did a second master's degree and then I did the PhD and then I got a job and and I mean, I, I say these things because it seems 
like things have come together very easily for me. But I should point out that it is challenging to get a job in my field. Like this is not an easy step. And I've been very, very lucky in my career. I, I think that luck is a large part of it because everyone in my field works hard. But I appreciate you how you've you kind of followed the breadcrumbs towards like, oh, this interests me here. So I'm going to go learn a bit about this. And I'm going to take a little zigzag over here. And then here you are at UBC. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's been a twisty road to get here. It seems kind of straightforward. I don't know. So like my undergraduate degree was in Russian and Eastern European studies. So I, I did take politics classes. I took history classes. And then my master's, the first master's degree was in Slavic studies. So I took a second Slavic language and I took, you know, literature and culture classes related to that language. That was super interesting. And, and I took folklore, I took history, I took a lot of different things as part of that master's degree. And then I decided to go full on literature. So I finished that degree and then transferred into a master's and PhD program specifically for literary studies. And I know you you did mention that you abandoned your computer science degree. It seems to have come back through some of your projects, like the digital Dostoevsky and the data sitters club. So it wasn't fully abandoned. Yeah, I, like I always find coding and using math really interesting. Like I, I like the part of my brain that it uses. Um, and so as I've been going through my career, I learned about a field called digital humanities, which uses digital tools and methodologies to analyze things. So not just literary texts, you can use it to analyze maps, you can use it to do mapping, you can use it to do networking, like there's a lot of different things you can do in the field. And I got really excited about using it to do text analysis, uh, specifically, it's called computational text analysis. And yeah, that's what I've been doing. So I have a project that I work on um, with a team based at the University of Toronto that I'm co-PI on called Digital Dostoevsky. And what we are doing is using XML encoding to tag Dostoevsky's texts. Um, and we've been working on his corpus, so multiple novels, and then using, basically you tag the text in a way the computer can read, and then you can ask the computer questions that look at a more micro scale than you're able to look at as a reader. So for example, reading the novel, The Double, um, which is one of the texts that we're working on. This is Dostoevsky's 1846 novel, The Double. One of the things we're interested in is the appearance of, so this is a novel about a guy who meets his double, zaniness ensues. It's a Petersburg text. So he's he's like a clerk and he's uncomfortable in his clerk role. So he has a lot of anxiety around this. And so one of the things that we were interested in is how he is referred, how the main character is referred to in the novel and how the double is referred to in the novel. And you can read the whole novel and just look for instances of this. But once you've tagged the novel, you can just type into the computer and say, okay, what are all of the names that Goliadkin, the main character, is called? And it just spits out a list of, you know, 200 of them. Um, and so that's really helpful for thinking about the novel in different ways that it would be challenging to do as a human that is putting your eyes on the novel. But that being said, like tagging the novel, you have to read the novel really closely. Like each tag is an interpretive decision, right? So you have to say like, okay, this is definitely a nickname that Goliadkin is being called. And I'm going to tag it as a nickname that Goliadkin is being called. Okay. Then so for someone who is interpreting what you have interpreted here, how does that, mm -hmm. what level of understanding does that digital analysis open up? 
So there is a field of Russian literary criticism called Russian formalism. Formalism exists outside of the Russian context, but there's a school of formalism within Russian literary criticism, the early 20th century. And these people were very interested in the structure of novels. They were interested in the literary text in and of itself and not so much the context for it. Um, and so we find that in our work, a lot of the questions that we're asking are the same questions the formalists were asking. But the way that we come to answer them using these digital methodologies is different and it gives different answers. But these are the, the questions that we're asking are the same questions that literary critics have been asking about these texts since they were written. So like one point of contention in Russian literature is, again, niche. Does the epilogue of crime and punishment match the rest of the novel? And critics are divided. Like some of them say, yes, it absolutely matches the novel because of these themes that go through the novel and it's also in the epilogue. And other people are like, no, it obviously should not be on the novel. It's ruined the novel. Like it's an abomination. And so one of the questions that we can ask is, is the epilogue for Crime and Punishment written in the same way as the rest of the novel? And you can tell that through looking at these minute changes in the text. It's very, it's very interesting to me as a person who likes analyzing and likes doing close reading of literary texts. Whether it's valuable for other people, I do not know. I don't know that it has to be. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like we all pursue things that interest us for the inherent joy that they give us. And I think what I'm just pulling out of this part two section here is that if you have a question, then you need to find a way to answer it. Yeah. And also... Finding the way to answer it is pretty interesting, too. Like, that's part of the, the quote Dostoevsky. At one point, Dostoevsky in, I want to say it was in, um, no, I'm not going to say. I cannot remember. It all runs together. Don't quote me on that. Um, I should remember. But at one point, Dostoevsky says, Christopher Columbus, when he was approaching the new world, the most exciting moment for him was like the day before because he was still in that process of discovery, right? He hadn't yet landed. He didn't yet know what was there, but he, he was in that process. And that process is the most exciting part. So it's like that moment just before you wake up on Christmas morning. And the, the thing too, is that a literary book, so, so like my book, for example, my book took me a long time to write. And the reason it took me a long time to write is because when I'd done the analysis, it got boring. I'd already figured out what I wanted to say. And then I still had to say it, but I'd already figured it out. Like I wanted to move on to the next thing, but I, I still had to write the book. Okay. No, that's a good example. How's that for part two? That's yeah? pretty good. That's pretty good. I have one more question. Um, you do? Okay. I, I, yes. Which I thought was a really good question. I'd like to answer it. Okay. What do you got? Which one do you want to answer? Which is this one where you said someone had a stark reality moment where she was told your writing is so good that it took me so long to realize that you had no idea what you were talking about. Have I experienced something similar where I had to confront the limits of my current ability between where I thought it was and versus the reality of them? I was going off yeah. of um, how we were so daunted by the number of questions that I had written that we weren't sure. <laughs> so we haven't covered all of them, people. There's a lot more. Dustin is a little over enthusiastic about his questions. That comes from, I believe her name is uh, Shadi Barch, and she is an academic and a scholar. And she had a moment mm -hmm. where a prof or whoever was supervising her thesis said, you write so well that I have, that it took me a long time to figure out that you do not know what you're talking about. And she mm -hmm. took that as a moment of growth. Like she was hurt and shocked, of course, 
but she took that as a moment of, okay, I can actually grow from this. I would take that to be complimentary coming from a supervisor. (laughs) (laughs) But do you have, do you have something similar where you thought, Hey, I understanding I'm grasping, but did you have that moment where you're just like, you're not as far ahead as where you thought you were? No, I, I find I have that moment in retrospect. And that's kind of what I wanted to mention. So like when I, at the moment when I'm doing the writing, I feel like, yes, I'm like at the top of my writing game. This is the best thing I can write. And I had an article published in like a top journal in my field in 2013. And I was like, this is great. And then you read the article a couple years later and you're like, oh, how did this get published? And um, another reason why the book took a long time is because, so the first academic book is very often a version of the dissertation. And my academic book did come out of my dissertation. The dissertation was radically different. So the dissertation didn't have as many chapters. It didn't cover as much stuff. But there are some parts that were originally readings that I had done within the dissertation. And and I knew that I wanted them to be a part of the book. But going back to those things that I'd written, you know, 10 years ago, it was like a Pandora's box. Like you open it up and you're like, Ooh, how did I get a PhD? Like, were people reading this stuff and they were like thinking what I'm thinking? Because this is bad. And those feelings come from a place where you realize that you've become a better writer. But it also kind of keeps you humble because you realize that what I'm writing now is probably not as good as what I'll be writing like in the next book, I hope. Right. So like, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with how my book came out. I've only found one mistake in it so far, which was a typo. Um, which is not bad because I'm hypercritical about that typos, but I, I didn't find it. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. But I uh, realized that when, if I go back and reread it, which I haven't done yet, I will probably, you know, be like, Ooh. <laughs> and that's good. Right. It's good. But I feel like also once you put something out in the world, it becomes up to the reader's response to it. So if it helped you, then great. It, it did its job. It, it really did. I just have one like silly mm-hmm. question about this, but did you have the urge to call up your, what do they call it? The defense panel and say, can I rewrite this thesis? I feel I could, you know, publish mm-hmm. a better one or no. No, no, no. Yeah. My PhD advisor gave me very good advice. And that was that your dissertation is not perfect. Like your dissertation will never be perfect. The best dissertation is done dissertation. She said, you know, the dissertation is a, is a thing you have to do to get this degree. And the next thing you'll do will be the book and the book will be better. And I really appreciate that advice. And so I embargoed my dissertation, which is a thing you can do. So dissertations are usually digitally published on something called ProQuest and anyone can read them, but you can request to have it embargoed. So I had it embargoed so no one can read it. And I was like, yes, the book will be better and the book is better. Well, that's fantastic. Well, here is to growing and to learning and to asking a lot of questions. And thank you again. I am sincere in the fact that you made me a better reader. Yay. Well, I'm glad for that. And I hope you keep reading. I mean, I'm pretty sure you will because you have a huge list, but I hope you do. (gasps) Well, Katia, a second thank you for the part two here and all the best. And I will talk to you soon. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.